the political uses of Australian genocide the role of Captain Arthur Phillip reprised, October 2015. Abstract. Was Arthur Phillip a hero or a villain? A humanitarian or a despot? Was he merely a dutiful instrument of his time or did he exhibit the self-awareness of men's rare, guilty mind? Is a key servant of any sovereign state culpable for their actions, now or at any time in the past? Or are they above the law because they represent the law, as defined by national interests? Does the standards of the time argument really apply? The reflexive argument that we cannot judge the past because times were different then? Or is it a denial of innate human values, a limp defense that might is always right, in the past and forever into the future? This paper examines Philip's role in Australian history. It challenges whether his historical impact, as a representative of Imperial Britain, was benevolent or dysfunctional, viewed through the lens of human rights. It presents a contrarian view of Philip that points to his role as a British harbinger and agent of Australian genocide. Once the pattern of invasive British occupation was established the system of land grants, land alienation and the policy of accelerated emigration, the one-sided system of laws that denied Aboriginal witness testimony to atrocities, the use of armed force to ensure Aboriginal resistance would not be tolerated the social and political outcome for the Indigenous people was inevitable. Well over 90% of the Aboriginal population were to disappear by 1911. The questions then become, have we learned anything from our history, beginning with Philip? Or are those same exploitative behaviours still with us in a more pernicious form? Context. When Britain appointed Captain Arthur Phillip as leader of the First Fleet to Australia and governor of the new colony of New South Wales, he was given certain draft instructions, the original has never been found. Among these instructions was that he should conciliate the affections of the natives, a directive that Britain was to repeat for all subsequent governors. There is no evidence that this directive was ever treated seriously by colonial administrative functionaries. How could it be so, when Britain's objective was to occupy the land and dispossess the Aboriginal inhabitants, by force if they resisted? Arthur had a difficult job. He was responsible for the lives and well-being of all those under his command, and he was in a strange land where he was expected to establish a self-sustaining settlement that could grow over some period. The supply lines were tenuous, at least initially. How could he achieve this objective and conciliate the affections of the natives at the same time, when his entire purpose was to dispossess them and make them welcome their dispossession? He could not, nor could his successors. However, what Arthur might do was allow the Aboriginals free reign over substantial areas of their homelands and punish anyone who willfully harmed a native. He did neither. His hands were tied. Britain did not recognize Aboriginal rights to any part of the land. And the British laws of occupation and property would not tolerate resistance or trespass. Instead, one of Arthur's first acts was to organize a punitive expedition to bring back Aboriginal heads in a basket. Arthur hoped to strike terror into Aboriginals and achieve fearful compliance with the theft of their land. There was bumbling compliance by Watkin Tench, although Dawes refused to obey, 
knowing that it failed the test of morality. Dawes paid dearly. Arthur destroyed his career. The attempt by Arthur at a bloody reprisal for his gamekeeper's death becomes a case study into the defining shape or agency of Arthur's administration. Agency was cemented in policy. Individual freedom to act was constrained by British intent and official orders. It also points to the attitudes of subsequent administrations, as behaviors hardened towards the aboriginals, who progressively became derogated as vermin, and for whom extermination was to be quickly accepted as entirely appropriate. Aboriginal British relations would never get any better from this point. Indeed, they were to become far worse, resulting in rolling genocide across the invasive frontiers as British settlements spread across the continent. The occupation became a war, the longest war in Australia's history, a war that was to last until well into the 20th century, a one-sided war that saw the Aboriginal population fall by well over 90%. This is the only real test of British expansionism. We should ignore what was said by way of supposedly humanitarian intentions. Instead, we should consider what was the result of the invasion on the indigenous population. It could have been very different. It should have been different if humanitarian concerns by Britain had outweighed economic considerations. Geoffrey Robertson, the expatriate Australian human rights lawyer, in supporting the work of his colleague Michael Pembroke, too publicly argues that Philip is an under-recognised hero. Their advocacy is flawed and ignores or diminishes historical reality. It assumes that the degree of initial difficulty in occupying a remote territory over the objections of the indigenous inhabitants equates with morality or some creditable measure of moral resolve that reflected the self-appointed imperative of imperial expansionism. Robertson is now a long-time resident of Britain, along with his Australian spouse Cathy Lett. These days, Robertson tends to view Australian history through the remote filter of his juridical old boys network. In defending Justice Pembroke's hagiographical treatment of Philip, Robertson is in danger of putting fraternity connections above objectivity. As a prominent exponent of human rights, Robertson should take note. After all, Britain disavowed or reprioritized humanitarian concerns with its invasive occupation of New Holland. Philip's Antipodean arrival rewrote Australian history. Post-1788 became a mythical time of benign pastoral triumphalism, with Philip a humanitarian interlocutor. Aboriginals were left to despair their loss, a process that continues today. Civilization is, or should be, broader than national self-interest. Civilization did not arrive with the first fleet, as Manning Clark espouses, three rather than become forfeit, a victim of imperial territorial aspirations in the South Pacific. Victors usually write history, even own it. Philip's occupation of Australia was little different. Historical truth was the casualty and so it still remains. For as long as notable international human rights lawyers and local judiciary defend the unconscionable, ignore the unpalatable, or promote the questionable, historicity is at risk. The first fleet arrives. On 26 January 1788, Philip IV sailed with the British First Fleet into Port Jackson, 
what we now call Sydney Harbour, with a motley collection of eleven ships, their crew and convicts, and with his orders to conciliate the affections of the natives surely a hollow instruction that Britain was to cynically repeat for each of its subsequent governors. Philip's first actions were to establish a beachhead settlement at Sydney Cove and secure an outpost of empire. He nearly failed. The first relief supply ship did not arrive and Philip's colonists were forced to forage for their food. When aboriginals speared Philip's gamekeeper for depredations against them, Philip's enraged response was revenge. He would not tolerate any resistance to his authority. He ordered his military to bring back aboriginal heads in a basket, one of his first acts of conciliation, with his senior officers refusing to comply, beginning a farcical engagement of pretense. When the 1789 smallpox outbreak occurred, Philip was very slow to inform his superiors and then not the calamitous extent of its effect on the local aboriginal population. Could it have been that the outbreak was not unexpected? As Philip slowly consolidated his New South Wales settlement, he began a process of awarding land grants to the favoured few. Such grants were to accelerate in the years after and for subsequent governors. The only people ineligible for land were the indigenous population. No, aboriginals would not be welcome in Philip's invasion of Australia. He will be remembered by the indigenous owners for representing the hard fist of the British Empire, as it advanced its armed territorial reach into the southern latitudes. Draft Instructions for Governor Philip, 25 April 1787 When Britain issued these instructions, it corrected an apparent error of Cook's, who had only claimed the coastline between two latitudes, inexplicably without specifying longitudinal boundaries, in the name of the British sovereign. Or perhaps there were secret British negotiations with the Dutch, to agree the eastern meridian boundary of their claim to New Holland. Arriving with Philip, Britain now extended its claim of possession inland from the coast to longitude 135 degrees east, roughly midway across the continent, and including Van Diemen's land, which Britain had previously deemed the possession of the Dutch, through earlier discovery by Tasman in 1642. Britain included the following instruction to Philip, concerning the treatment of aboriginals. There is evidence that Philip initially attempted to comply, although sometimes he had to resort with kidnapping to conciliate their affections. It is certain that land grants and military operations were far from conciliation. The particular instruction, which Britain repeated to other incoming governors for their tour of duty, can be seen as empty rhetoric, mere window dressing for forcible occupation, where all land belonged to the crown. You are to endeavour by every possible means to open an intercourse with the natives and to conciliate their affections, enjoining all our subjects to live in amity and kindness with them, and if any of our subjects shall wantonly destroy them, or give them an unnecessary interruption in the exercise of their several occupations, it is our will and pleasure that you do cause such offenders to be brought to punishment according to the degree of the offence. 7. The draft instructions make no mention or acknowledgement of aboriginal prior possession, and allowed Philip's right to make grants of crown land to whomever he chose, notably excluding the aboriginals whose land it was. Thus, 
Britain's intent was clear from the first day of the invasion, that Aboriginals had no rights to their homelands. Perhaps the thought was that Britain could assimilate Aboriginals into British civilization through conciliation. The violent racial consequences over the next 150 years were therefore inevitable. An obdurate Britain would not resile from its imperial imperative to invade and control, not in Australia, not anywhere. We live with the outcome of those flawed policies today, where Aboriginals generally remain marginalised, discriminated against in the Australian Constitution, and the denial of genocide continues as a political and public mantra. The Process of British Civilization. Philip was the first governor of the newly formed colony of New South Wales. He began the practices of land grants and settlement, acting on Britain's general instructions. He allowed the sexual predation, driven by the shortage of women. He excluded Aboriginals from land ownership. He used the military to enforce Britain's occupation. Therefore, he must carry the responsibility, as Britain's first administrative instrument, for the long-term consequences of Britain's invasion. The Introduction of Smallpox a Lemkinian genocidal process 8 began with Philip, exacerbated by introduced infective disorders. The most significant was a smallpox epidemic, which first broke out in April 1789, probably caused by some variole major samples held amongst the colony's medical supplies. Without Watkin Tench's account, we would not know that the samples existed. And although Tench said it was unthinkable that the samples had been misused, there is no reported evidence that anyone even checked that they were still intact, certainly not Philip, given the substance of his dispatches. Philip did not report the devastating outbreak to his superiors until ten months after it first appeared, an extraordinary omission, although he thought it significant enough to include a mention, in dispatches dated February 1790, the sole death from smallpox of an American sailor on board the supply in May the previous year, about a month after the outbreak began amongst the Aboriginal population. In February 1790, Philip wrote to Lord Sidney, whether the smallpox, which has proved fatal to great numbers of the natives, is a disorder to which they were subject before any Europeans visited this country, or whether it was brought by the French ships, we have not yet attained sufficient knowledge of the language to determine it never appeared on board any of the ships in our passage, nor in the settlement, until some time after numbers of the natives had been seen dead with the disease in different parts of the harbour. The smallpox never appeared in the settlement until the 2nd of May, when a man belonging to the supply was seized with the disorder and died a few days afterwards. Why did Philip wait almost ten months before reporting the outbreak to his superiors? Why did Philip fail to mention that the outbreak had begun some nine months prior? Why did Philip not mention the medical supplies as a probable cause of the outbreak? Between May 1789 and February 1790, there were numerous dispatches to Britain, none of which mentioned the sudden devastating disease occurrence. If there were smallpox samples in his medical supplies, and what contention informs us that there were, why did Philip not do a simple check to see if they were still present? Why did the Home Office show so little interest in the outbreak? 
There is no evidence from the British dispatch record over the ensuing years that they mention smallpox at all, following the February 1790 communication from Philip about the human calamity. Perhaps the British government was unsurprised. At a minimum, it was unconcerned. In fact, the most significant dispatch in 1789 was between Lord Grenville and Philip in August 1789, and it concerned land grants to non-commissioned officers. 11 And why is Major Ross so curiously silent? We do know that smallpox-infected blankets were used by General Sir Geoffrey Amherst in his war against the North American Indians in 1763. According to the American revolutionaries, the British also used smallpox against them in 1775, and we also know that Ross fought in the North American War, although Connor argues that Ross may not have known about this because he served in Canada from 1757 to 1760, and left three years before the smallpox incident occurred. However, Ross also served in Boston around 1775, when the Americans claimed that the British used smallpox against them. There is a detailed Aboriginal oral record that the disease epicenter was at what is now called Balmoral Beach, north of the Sydney Cove settlement on Port Jackson, where British soldiers under Major Ross II in command of the First Fleet had been distributing blankets as a supposedly friendly gesture. Hidden History The Rules of Dispossession in New Holland History can be defined by what is left unsaid, the hidden history, which slowly and inevitably becomes revealed even when there is official suppression of the actual evidence. Philip's administration is no different. The British version is that Philip was a capable and humane bureaucrat, tasked with establishing penal colonies in remote New South Wales and New Norfolk, when the supply line was 12 months away and help was uncertain. His secondary objective was to build a settlement, provide land grants, encourage immigration and become a source of supply for flax and timber, used for masts and sails. What was said? What was done? These British government objectives set in place the behavioral constraint rules that defined the architecture of imperial occupation, as settler supremacy moved from de facto to de jure, supported by an ever-tightening juridical process. Nowhere among British imperial policy was there any instruction or consideration of Aboriginal land rights, a scotoma that would rapidly lead to moral blindness and ethnic cleansing. Another way of expressing the truism regarding the exercise of power, oppresses right history, and rarely allow the victims a voice. Force majeure exerts its repressive authority, the forceful argument that might is right. When Philip arrived, he almost immediately began commandeering large tracts of land along the waterways and prime agricultural areas in order to feed the colony. From 1992, as the settlement grew, Philip began a process of land grants to his favoured few. Near historic Rydalmere where I live, close by Parramatta and its river, the local Ermington Library. Proudly carries an external bicentennial plaque, dated 1992, commemorating the first land grants in the area by Governor Philip. In Philip's extensive and generous land allocations across the newly formed colony, the Ermington grants were a very small amount, perhaps 600 or 700 acres, but his largesse did not consider the aboriginals, 
whose land it was. After a portion of land was granted, aboriginals were simply driven off, like wraiths, and expected to survive without access to their customary food sources along the riverbanks and on the plains. As a general policy, the British did not permit aboriginals to own land. After all, the purpose of land in British thinking was to own it as property, and to cultivate it, and aboriginals had no interest in cultivation or private property. They held the perverse view that land was for hunting and common enjoyment for the benefit of all. The Ermington plaque reads, Settlement of Ermington. Governor Philip granted land in this vicinity to eight marines and settlement took place in 1792. These pioneer settlers were Isaac Archer, Alexander MacDonald, John Carver, James Manning, John Colthred, Thomas Swinnerton, Thomas Caltrell, Thomas Tynan. I have not been able to determine the exact location of their land grants or the actual size. Not surprisingly, Ermington Library does not have any cadastral map information, but I managed to unearth that each marine was awarded about 80 acres before some of the allotments were acquired and consolidated around the field of Mars district by the infamous Reverend Samuel Marsden, who managed to prey on aboriginals in many ways, generally for his self-enrichment. Britain continued this inequitable practice of awarding land to favoured applicants for a nominal amount or consideration until the 1820s. At this time, colonial governors began to make a series of declarations that certain unoccupied land was wasteland, which they then alienated, claimed, in the name of the crown, leaving them free to replace grants with a far more profitable system of land sales across the continent. This change of British government land policy was a result of Commissioner Biggs' recommendations in 1823. Eventually, as the pastoral map covered most of Australia outside the so-called settled areas, Aboriginals were left with nowhere to go. They were expected, and sometimes violently encouraged, to die out. The policy almost succeeded. In the 1911 census, there were only about 30,000 full-blood Aboriginals recorded, a cataclysmic population fall exceeding 95%, leaving the survivors shell-shocked and their tormentors triumphant, resolved to continue with an end-stage policy of incarceration in detention centers if they accepted their plight, and filthy jails if they didn't. Many more died. Britain expected him to, as did the emerging self-governing colonies from the mid-19th century that morphed into federation at the turn of the century. However, their spirit willed them to live. Today, Aboriginals suffer one of the highest proportionate rates of incarceration and ill health in the world for any ethnic group far worse than South Africa, for example, during its inhumane period of apartheid. The type occupation process overlaps that of genocide. The figure shows the instantiation, shaded components or sub-processes, of the occupation process during Philip's period as governor between 1788 and 1792, and provides a deterministic model within a normative behavioral envelope for what would follow over the next century, according to a collective intent by the British government towards complete dispossession of aboriginals. It further shows the actionable components, or sub-processes, 
that are impending after Philip's departure, and will soon be instantiated in an implacable British program of dispossession that resulted in inevitable genocide, as settler sovereignty moved from de facto to de jure. Not all occupation processes result in genocide, in the same way that not all home invasions resolve in murder. In Australia's case, the sub-processes identified by shading were to trigger other sub-processes that became increasingly violent, as the war for the land continued. Why was the architecture of Australia's occupation to become genocidal? It was because Britain did not allow Aboriginals to own land. It was also because Britain assumed the right to dispossess Aboriginals of their land. Dispossession was further fueled by British legal principles of property and trespass, and the right to protect oneself and one's property. The right did not extend to Aboriginals. Racially motivated extermination became the rule, whether by individuals, or the military or the police. Philip began this process. He was acting for Britain. He could have resiled, but he was obdurate in his duty. But the overwhelming desire for indigenous people to stay on ancestral lands cannot and should not be suppressed, not by governments, not by the police. Passive welfare is a cancer on these communities. So is withholding Commonwealth funds for community activities, such as maintaining the ecosystem and Aboriginal heritage. When Aboriginals are forced to go to towns, they become without hope, prey to drugs and alcohol. Much of the Commonwealth government funding goes to intermediaries, consultants, state government advisors. Towns and regional centers are no replacement for self-managed reserves. They do not replace the hope of country or of a rich cultural past. These communities are not a lifestyle choice, as one prime minister espoused. They are a reaffirmation of a proud tradition over millennia, which was stolen by the process of British occupation. They are a means to nurture ancient languages and law. The purposeful destruction of Aboriginal society has gone on for far too long. It must not be allowed to continue. Our shared history deserves no less than to be nurtured. The involved party is now us. The involved party is associated with a role or agency. In our behavioral model for Lemkinian genocide, 14 we see that, although individuals are free to act independently, or have the capacity for agency, those acts are limited and to some extent determined by social constraint rules, or role structure, within an intentionality envelope set by government policies and legislation. We see these roles play out in the occupation process model, of which we are now a part. Can history be judged? History often considers Philip as a fair-minded administrator, operating under difficult conditions. Many historians note his refusal to prosecute or punish Benelong when he speared Philip at Manly Beach. But consider the facts. Yes, Benelong speared Philip. The spear was not a death spear, with detachable stones that would cause a fatal infection when dislodged. Benelong wanted to achieve respect from his tribe, after Philip had kidnapped him. Philip knew all this. Philip needed Benelong. He needed Benelong's support, when the British colony was vulnerable. Therefore, he extended an olive branch. But was Philip really so benevolent? We will spend some time with Philip, 
New South Wales' first governor, in order to appreciate his capability for dishonest, frequently devious, and sometimes murderous behaviour. We will examine Philip's relationship with two of his offices, Watkin Tench and William Dawes, as an instructive case instance of state-sponsored Aboriginal repression, what became a lengthy, patterned process. Philip was the first in a long conga line of such administrators, many far more oppressive than Philip, all pressing the cause of Britain T Limited in its Antipodean colony through the rise of settler sovereignty and the destruction of Aboriginal society. By understanding Philip in some detail, we may reasonably claim to better understand his successes, for a similar imperial occupation process, based on force of arms and racist legislation, shaped their collective administrative behaviors for an extended period. This process depended on indigenocide and forcible deprivation of land and culture to achieve pastoral supremacy. To understand this process is to know ourselves. Perhaps it will allow us to learn. John Connor, a military historian, and Inga Clendinen, a very respected and eloquent colonial historian, are both key proponents of the popular view that we cannot judge the past, that standards were different then. But were the standards different then? When facts are indisputable, the only feasible counter-argument is that the actions were appropriate for the standards of the times, which often translates as people were acting with the best of intentions, so it follows their actions were reasonable. What are the facts upon which Connor and Clendinen depend? Did Philip know what he was doing was wrong? More importantly, did his officers? Both Clendinen and Connor assert that Philip was acting appropriately, according to the standards of the time, and did not believe that his actions were wrong, either morally or legally. This defense may be valid, but only if his officers also had the same view. Nevertheless, Tension Dawes both knew that Philip's command for a punitive reprisal against Aboriginals was against their moral code, showed callous indifference to Aboriginal life, and both rejected Philip's order, in rather different ways. Does the refusal to obey Philip's command, or bumbling compliance, then translate as insubordination, rather than moral rejection? Are Clendinen and Connor exposed as presenting a morally flawed argument, that they are selectively presenting the facts. Both Connor and Clendinen propone that we cannot judge the past. Their argument, if someone believes their actions are justified, according to the circumstances of the time, it follows that they would not accept that they were aware their actions were wrong. But Philip's officers clearly knew that Philip's orders to murder aboriginals were morally repugnant, so they rejected them. Even Philip probably believed he was wrong, because he invited Tench to propose another punitive tack, which Philip readily accepted in a private meeting. Philip was also deceptively careful not to include all the facts that Sir antagonized Tench and Dawes, when he sought to apprise Grenville, the Secretary of State, of Dawes' alleged insubordination. If Philip manipulated the facts to his superiors, it is clear evidence he knew his actions were wrong, or mens rea, a legal principle meaning guilty mind, an important basis for British criminal jurisprudence from at least the 12th century. We will present the evidence that Philip, far from being the pillar of virtue and approbation where history currently presents him, 
was at times a duplicitous, vindictive and morally compromised rodent 15 in the loyal service of the British government, beset by myriad problems that might challenge his authority and the viability of the colony, concerned to keep his superiors on side, unwilling to recognize Aboriginal rights to their land, his behavior by no means unique among colonial administrators who were generally driven by their career aspirations and the need for self-preservation. When Aboriginals resisted the occupation process, he took harsh and vindictive measures against them, convinced he was right, convinced that any resistance was an affront to the British Empire and its authority to impose summary justice. He saw no wrong in Aboriginal dispossession, was prepared to destroy the careers of officers who did not mindlessly follow his orders, who knew right from wrong but believed the chain of command was paramount, and is therefore deserving of our contempt. You may say, where is the evidence? Here it is. Connor's view expanded. We begin by quoting Connor. He writes, The punitive expeditions of December 1790 have become notorious because Philip's original orders instructed the expedition to capture two Bijigal men and kill ten. The dead were to be beheaded, and their heads brought back to Sydney for which purpose, hatchets and bags would be furnished. Reynolds refers to this original order when he states that Philip advocated using terror against Aborigines. This is true, but the word terror must be understood in the way Philip would have defined it, as an integral part of the legal system. The British historian Douglas Hay has written that the 18th century British were a people schooled in the lessons of justice, terror and mercy. Inga Clendinen adds that Philip, in issuing this first order, was attempting to stage a histrionic performance of the terror of British law in accordance with the fine late 18th century tradition of formal floggings, elaborate death rites, and breathless last-minute reprieves and repentances. Reynolds neglects to mention that the expedition did not take place under the original order to behead ten Aborigines. As part of the legal theatre, Philip decided to moderate his terror with mercy and asked Tench, the expedition's commander, if he wished to propose any alteration of the orders. Tench suggested that the capture of two and killing of ten be reduced to the capture of six. Philip instantly agreed, though he insisted that if six were captured, two would be hanged as punishment for the deaths for which the Bijigal were responsible. If six could not be captured, they were to be shot. Philip farther restrained the conduct of the punitive expedition by stating that women and children were not be harmed, huts were not to be destroyed, and that no ruses were to be used to draw the bijigal towards the expedition. The first expedition, consisting of Tench, Captain Hill of the newly arrived New South Wales Corps, Lieutenant Polden and Lieutenant Dawes, the surgeons Worgan and Lowe, three sergeants, three corporals, and 40 privates, left Sydney with three days' provisions at 4 a.m. on 14 December 1790. They halted for the night, probably between Cook's and George's Rivers, and began marching at dawn the next day towards the mouth of the George's River with the aim of working down the coastline towards the Cook's River. However, the two convict guides, who had been with McIntyre when he had been speared, and were perhaps anxious to avoid a similar fate themselves, turned towards the coast too early, 
with the result that the Marines suddenly found themselves on the bay, halfway between the two rivers, near five Yora men. Tench wrote, We pursued, but a contest between heavy armed Europeans, fettered by ligatures, and naked unencumbered Indians, was too unequal to last long. The expedition then rushed to some nearby huts, but the people there escaped by canoe. Tench ordered a search of the huts for weapons, but they found only fishing gear. The expedition having failed, the party returned to Sydney. Philip then ordered Tench out for a second expedition. This time Tench used three tactics in an attempt to gain surprise. The first, in an attempt to lull the Bijigal into a false sense of security, was an open announcement that the new expedition was aimed at the man who speared Philip at Manly and not the Bijigal at Botany Bay. The second, to save time and keep the element of surprise, was his attempt to cross the Walai Creek estuary. This decision backfired, because three men, including Tench, got stuck in the mud and had to be hauled out with ropes. The third attempt to surprise the Bijigal occurred when the party came near the huts just before dawn. Tench divided the detachment into three groups and ordered them, under the most perfect silence, to take a different route, so as to meet at the village at the same moment. Tench was pleased with the Marines' execution of this order. He wrote nothing could succeed more exactly than the arrival of the several detachments. However, the huts were empty and had probably been so since the first expedition. The party rested up in the heat of the day and returned to Sydney at 9am the next morning. Private John Eastie took part in both expeditions and reckoned they were nothing but a troublesome, tedious march. Watkin Tench's account of Philip's reprisal expedition. We now turn to Watkin Tench's 18 journal account of the incident. Tench was an eloquent and truthful observer of early Sydney, and his report is completely engaging, unlike the turgid and uninteresting journal attributed to Philip, whom we are inclined to dismiss for his demonstrable lack of truthfulness. We learn from Tench that Philip invited Tench's opinion on the plan to make a reprisal military assault on Aboriginals to the south and bring back a number of heads. Philip proposed this would cause fear in the Aboriginal community and thereby reduce ongoing conflict and resistance. Philip was aware that his plan had some resistance among his officers, Lieutenant William Dawes of the Marines in particular. Captain Tench, Dawes' superior officer, knew Philip's vindictive plan was wrong, inhumane and lacked proportionality, so he convinced Philip of a softer alternative. It is likely, in this Keystone Cops attempt at retribution, that Tench was going out of his way to make the execution of Philip's plan a failure. Tench was also aware that McIntyre had probably caused his own demise from a death spear, because of McIntyre's likely random killing of Aboriginals and sexual predation on their women, something that Philip, in his flawed judgment, was clearly not prepared to accept. The likely reason Philip depended on the gamekeeper to hunt for food in what was little more than a foraging economy. Moreover, he did not want his authority challenged. But Philip was also concerned that Aboriginal resistance to the British occupation process had already killed or wounded 17 British, without loss to Aboriginals, so he decided on his own vengeful random killing by way of reprisal, 
to try and shock aboriginals into terrified submission. If Philip thought terror tactics would work, they failed. From this point, the conflict escalated and became systemic, and would follow the beachhead settlements all around Australia as settler society began its cancerous spread, while successive British governments passively looked on, occasionally with amused d. Chapter 12. Transactions of the Colony in part of December, 1790. On the ninth of the month, a sergeant of marines, with three convicts, among whom was McIntyre, the governor's gamekeeper, the person of whom Benilon had, on former occasions, shown so much dread and hatred, went out on a shooting party. Having passed the north arm of Botany Bay, they proceeded to a hut formed of boughs, which had been lately erected on this peninsula, for the accommodation of sportsmen who wished to continue by night in the woods. For, as the kangaroos in the daytime, chiefly keep in the cover, it is customary on these parties to sleep until near sunset, and watch for the game during the night, and in the early part of the morning. Accordingly, having lighted a fire, they lay down, without distrust or suspicion. About one o'clock, the sergeant was awakened by a rustling noise in the bushes near him, and supposing it to proceed from a kangaroo, called to his comrades, who instantly jumped up. On looking about more narrowly, they saw two natives, with spears in their hands, creeping towards them, and three others a little farther behind. As this naturally created alarm, McIntyre said, don't be afraid, I know them, and immediately laying down his gun, stepped forward, and spoke to them in their own language. The Indians, finding they were discovered, kept slowly retreating, and McIntyre accompanied him about a hundred yards, talking familiarly all the while. One of them now jumped on a fallen tree, and without giving the least warning of his intention, launched his spear at McIntyre, and lodged it in his left side. The person who committed this wanton act, was described as a young man, with a speck, or blemish, on his left eye. That he had been lately among us, was evident from his being newly shaved. The wounded man immediately drew back, and joining his party, cried, I am a dead man. While one broke off the end of the spear, the other two set out with their guns in pursuit of the natives, but their swiftness of foot, soon convinced our people of the impossibility of reaching them. It was now determined to attempt to carry McIntyre home, as his death was apprehended to be near, and he expressed a longing desire not to be left to expire in the woods. Being an uncommonly robust muscular man, notwithstanding a great effusion of blood, he was able, with the assistance of his comrades, to creep slowly along, and reached Sydney about two o'clock the next morning. On the wound being examined by the surgeons, it was pronounced mortal. The poor wretch now began to utter the most dreadful exclamations, and to accuse himself of the commission of crimes of the deepest dye, accompanied with such expressions of his despair of God's mercy, as are too terrible to repeat. In the course of the day, Colby, and several more natives came in, and were taken to the bed where the wounded man lay. Their behavior indicated, that they had already heard of the accident, as they repeated twice or thrice the name of the murderer Pim Elwi, saying, that he lived at Botany Bay. To gain knowledge of their treatment of similar wounds, 
one of the surgeons made signs of extracting the spear, but this they violently opposed, and said, if it were done, death would instantly follow. On the twelfth, the extraction of the spear was, however, judged practicable, and was accordingly performed. That part of it which had penetrated the body, measured seven inches and a half long, having on it a wooden barb, and several smaller ones of stone, fastened on with yellow gum, most of which, owing to the force necessary in extraction, were torn off and lodged in the patient. The spear had passed between two ribs, and had wounded the left lobe of the lungs. He lingered twenty until the twentieth of January, and then expired. On opening the corpse, it was found that the left lung had perished from suppuration, its remains adhering to the ribs. Some pieces of stone, which had dropped from the spear, were seen, but no barb of wood. The governor was at Rose Hill when this accident happened. On the day after he returned to Sydney, the following order was issued. Several tribes of the natives still continuing to throw spears at any man they meet unarmed, by which several have been killed, or dangerously wounded. The governor, in order to deter the natives from such practices in future, has ordered out a party to search for the man who wounded the convict McIntyre, in so dangerous a manner on Friday last, though no offence was offered on his part, in order to make a signal example of that tribe. At the same time, the governor strictly forbids, under penalty of the severest punishment, any soldier, or other person, not expressly ordered out for that purpose, ever to fire on any native except in his own defence, or to molest him in any shape, or to bring away any spears, or other articles, which they may find belonging to those people. The natives will be made severe examples of whenever any man is wounded by them, but this will be done in a manner which may satisfy them, that it is a punishment inflicted on them for their own bad conduct, and of which they cannot be made sensible, if they are not treated with kindness, while they continue peaceable and quiet. A party, consisting of two captains, two subalterns, and forty privates, with a proper number of non-commissioned officers, from the garrison, with three days' provisions, and sea, are to be ready to march tomorrow morning at daylight, in order to bring in six of those natives who reside near the head of Botany Bay, or, if that should be found impracticable, to put that number to death. Just previous to this order being issued, the author of this publication received a direction to attend the governor at headquarters immediately. I went, and His Excellency informed me, that he had pitched upon me to execute the foregoing command. He added, that the two subalterns who were to be drawn from the Marine Corps, should be chosen by myself, that the sergeant, and the two convicts who were with McIntyre, should attend as guides, that we were to proceed to the peninsula at the head of Botany Bay, and thence, or from any part of the north arm of the bay, we were, if practicable, to bring away two natives as prisoners, and to put to death ten, that we were to destroy all weapons of war, but nothing else, that no hut was to be burned, that all women and children were to remain uninjured, not being comprehended within the scope of the order, that our operations were to be directed, either by surprise, or open force that after we had made any prisoners, all communication, even with those natives with whom we were in habits of intercourse, was to be avoided, 
and none of them suffered to reproach us. That we were to cut off, and bring in the heads of the slain, for which purpose, hatchets and bags would be furnished. And finally, that no signal of amity or invitation should be used, in order to allure them to us, or if made on their part, to be answered by us, for that such conduct would be not only present treachery, but give them reason to distrust every future mark of peace and friendship on our part. His Excellency was now pleased to enter into the reasons which had induced him to adopt measures of such severity. He said that since our arrival in the country, no less than seventeen of our people had either been killed or wounded by the natives, that he looked upon the tribe known by the name of Bid-e-e-gal, living on the before-mentioned peninsula, and chiefly on the north arm of Botany Bay, to be the principal aggressors, that against this tribe he was determined to strike a decisive blow, in order, at once to convince them of our superiority, and to infuse an universal terror, which might operate to prevent farther mischief. That his observations on the natives had led him to conclude, that although they did not fear death individually, yet that the relative weight and importance of the different tribes appeared to be the highest object of their estimation, as each tribe deemed its strength and security to consist wholly in its powers, aggregately considered. That his motive for having so long delayed to use violent measures, had arisen from believing, that in every former instance of hostility, they had acted either from having received injury, or from misapprehension. To the latter of these causes, added he, I attribute my own wound, but in this business of McIntyre, I am fully persuaded that they were unprovoked, and the barbarity of their conduct admits of no extenuation, for I have separately examined the sergeant, of whose veracity I have the highest opinion, and the two convicts, and their story is short, simple, and alike. I have in vain tried to stimulate Benilon, Colby, and the other natives who live among us, to bring in the aggressor, yesterday, indeed, they promised me to do it, and actually went away, as if bent on such a design, but Benilon, instead of directing his steps to Botany Bay, crossed the harbour in his canoe, in order to draw the fortieth of some of the young men, and Colby, in the room of fulfilling his engagement, is loitering about the lookout house. Nay, so far from wishing even to describe faithfully the person of the man who has thrown the spear, they pretended that he has a distorted foot, which is a palpable falsehood. So that we have our efforts only to depend upon, and I am resolved to execute the prisoners who may be brought in, in the most public and exemplary manner, in the presence of as many of their countrymen as can be collected, after having explained the cause of such a punishment, and my fixed determination to repeat it, whenever any future breach of good conduct on their side, shall render it necessary. Here the governor stopped, and addressing himself to me, said, if I could propose any alteration of the orders under which I was to act, he would patiently listen to me. Encouraged by this condescension, I begged leave to offer for consideration, whether, instead of destroying ten persons, the capture of six would not better answer all the purposes for which the expedition was to be undertaken. As out of this number, a part might be set aside for retaliation, and the rest, at a proper time, liberated. Atta having seen the fate of their comrades, and being made sensible of the cause of their own detention, 
This scheme, His Excellency was pleased instantly to adopt, adding, If six cannot be taken, let this number be shot. Should you, however, find it practicable to take so many, I will hang two, and send the rest to Norfolk Island for a certain period, which will cause their countrymen to believe that we have dispatched them secretly. The order was accordingly altered to its present form, and I took my leave to prepare, after being again cautioned not to deceive, by holding signals of amity. At four o'clock on the morning of the 14th we marched, the detachment consisted, besides myself, of Captain Hill of the New South Wales Corps, Lieutenants Polder and Dawes, of the Marines, Mr. Worgan and Mr. Lowes, surgeons, three sergeants, three corporals, and forty private soldiers, provided with three days' provisions, ropes to bind our prisoners with, and hatchets and bags, to cut off and contain the heads of the slain. By nine o'clock this terrific procession reached the peninsula, at the head of Botany Bay, but after having walked in various directions until four o'clock in the afternoon, without seeing a native, we halted for the night. At daylight on the following morning our search recommenced. We marched in an easterly direction, intending to fall in with the southwest arm of the bay, about three miles above its mouth, which we determined to scour, and thence passing along the head of the peninsula, to proceed to the north arm, and complete our search. However, by a mistake of our guides, at half past seven o'clock instead of finding ourselves on the southwest arm, we came suddenly upon the seashore, at the head of the peninsula, about midway between the two arms. Here we saw five Indians on the beach, whom we attempted to surround, but they penetrated our design, and before we could get near enough to effect our purpose, ran off. We pursued, but a contest between heavy-armed Europeans, fettered by ligatures, and naked unencumbered Indians, was too unequal to last long. They darted into the wood and disappeared. The alarm being given, we were sensible that no hope of success remained, but by a rapid movement to a little village, if five huts deserve the name, which we knew stood on the nearest point of the north arm, where possibly someone unapprised of our approach, might yet be found. Thither we hastened, but before we could reach it three canoes, filled with Indians, were seen paddling over in the utmost hurry and trepidation, to the opposite shore, where universal alarm prevailed. All we could now do was to search the huts for weapons of war, but we found nothing except fish gigs, which we left untouched. On our return to our baggage, which we had left behind under a small guard near the place where the pursuit had begun, we observed a native fishing in shallow water not higher than his waist, at the distance of three hundred yards from the land. In such a situation it would not have been easily practicable either to shoot, or seize him. I therefore determined to pass without noticing him, as he seemed either from consciousness of his own security, or from some other cause, quite unintimidated at our appearance. At length he called to several of us by name, and in spite of our formidable array, drew nearer with unbounded confidence. Surprised at his behavior I ordered a halt, that he might overtake us, fully resolved, whoever he might be, that he should be suffered to come to us and leave us uninjured. Presently we found it to be our friend Colby, and he joined us at once with his wonted familiarity and unconcern. 
We asked him where Pamelwi 21 was, and found that he perfectly comprehended the nature of our errand, for he described him to have fled to the southward, and to be at such a distance, as, had we known the account to be true, would have prevented our going in search of him, without a fresh supply of provisions. When we arrived at our baggage, Colby sat down, eat, drank, and sleep with us, from ten o'clock until past noon. We asked him several questions about Sydney, which he had left on the preceding day, 22, and told us he had been present at an 